You know, it's been really enjoyable the last four and a half, five years, uh, being a part of Rimrock downtown, watching it kind of steadily evolve into what it is now. In the last six months, about 20 of us have been meeting together on a regular basis to try to figure out who we are and what God is calling us to do. And in the last couple of weeks, we've solidified a vision, kind of a foundational vision out of which we want to operate. There's been a lot of prayer and now talk about a new building, just a lot of things going on. It's just really enjoyable to see what God can do when things start off so different than they end up. Um, but at the heart of everything that's going on in here, there's, it's relationship. You know, we are here to grow in our relationship with God, whether that is intentional for you or not. That is what God is doing or trying to do within your life right now. As you worship him, as you learn about him, he just wants to get closer to you. But the other form of relationship is relationship with one another. And so what we're going to be doing in the next three, six months, and most likely the years to follow, is being far more intentional about giving you opportunities to build relationships with one another. And so this summer, starting here in a couple weeks, we're going to offer a lot of different opportunities from small groups to uh, bi-monthly every other week gatherings um, where a family is going to host it. And so it'll be a park at their backyard at a climbing uh, crag at the lake doing something that's enjoyable. Uh, for guys, there's ultimate frisbee and bike riding communities coming together. There's just a lot that's going to be produced in order to give you the opportunity to connect with other believers. Because at the foundation of the church, there's the idea of glorifying God, but then supporting one another. And in order to support one another, you've got to get to know one another. And so it, to do that and to do it well, it requires more than just an hour once a week. And so just know that that will be advertised as we move forward. Uh, you have the opportunity to go deeper with the people that surround you. Okay, before we hop in, jump in, start work, looking at God's word, uh, just let's pray a bit, just to kind of refocus our minds on why we're here. God, uh, we are here to get to know you more. We are here because over the next half an hour, 40 minutes, you are our priority. We set everything else aside, the 80 degree weather in May, in order to focus in on you, because we want to know you more, we love you, we long to know you more, we're curious about you, for some reason we are here, and so we ask that you would bless this time, that you would pour your goodness upon us, allow us to comprehend at least one piece of truth that we can walk away meditating upon. Yeah, we, we leave it in your hands. We trust you with that. Amen. All right, so the last five or six weeks, we've been going through a series called The Character of God and the Propensity of Man. And basically what we did, we started in Joshua, and we're moving through the entire rest of the Old Testament. So about 1,000, 1,500 years of Israelite history. And right now, we're about 500 years in. And what we're going to do over the next month is look at the prophets. How many of you like the prophets? More hands than I expected to see. I would say, apart from Leviticus and maybe Job, is probably the least read part of the Bible because it's just so strange. But what I want to show you in the next four months, or excuse me, the next four weeks, the next month, is 
a context out of which we can understand who the prophets are and what they're up to. And also, even more so, what we can see about God and his character through such poetic, beautiful language. It's such a gorgeous part of the Old Testament. It takes up about a third of the pages. So it's obviously important. So a little context of what the prophets are all about. So we've got to remember that God redeemed Israel from bondage in Egypt and then called them into the wilderness in order to enter into relationship with them. And he gave them laws in order to establish their culture, the things out of which their society was to develop. He then sent them into the land of Canaan to do two things. First one, to bring his judgment on wicked nations. The second, I feel like far more importantly, was to promote God's goodness and declare that every individual has a chance to enter into an intimate relationship with the one who created everything. In order to show the world the benefits of God, Israel needed to live life the way that he had created them to live. Out of following their commandments, they would receive the abundant life. And people would look at that and say, man, that's incredible. Why do they have what they have? Unfortunately, for most of Israel's history, the nation as a whole chose to conform to the cultures of the people around them instead of staying true to the covenant that, made, that they made with the one that redeemed them from inescapable bondage. Because they chose to break their covenant with God, not only did they simply fall into the normal cause and effects of the ways of this world, we live in a very selfish culture, out of selfishness comes loss. And so they are experiencing that due to their selfishness, they experienced a natural cause and effect. But they should have also been fully rejected by God. So let's go back to the beginning before they even went into the land. Deuteronomy 28, God puts this into the covenant. But if you will not obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commandments and decrees, which I am commanding you today, then all these curses shall fall upon you and overtake you. And the rest of Deuteronomy 28 is filled with one curse after another that potentially build to their utter destruction. So he's saying, man, if you don't follow me, this is what's going to happen to you. But fortunately for Israel and the rest of humanity, God's love and the way that he approaches his rebellious creation are illogical. I love the way Isaiah 55 puts it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, said the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So verses 8 and 9 you've heard before, if you've been in church at all, right? The idea that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But what we do not realize is what is he referring to in terms of the illogical way that he pursues things? His pardon. He says, my pardon does not make sense to you. I pardon in ways that you would never pardon. I offer forgiveness in ways that you cannot comprehend. When you would cast somebody away, I would pardon. This is why God sends the prophets. Due to this approach to a rebellious creation, due to his desire to pardon them abundantly. 
You know, a little bit more context on the prophets. 90% of the kings that follow Solomon do not trust in God, nor do they lead the nation of Israel to live life in accordance to God's standards and his plans for them. They do not promote the goodness of God and the importance of operating out of his, out of his design. And we're not just talking about breaking the covenant in small ways. There was a king, his name was Jeroboam. He followed Solomon. He creates two golden calves and an entire religious system for the people to follow instead of following God himself. So it's just blatant rebellion. Other kings sacrificed their firstborn son in fire to the god Molech, which is the god of fertility in Canaan. The foolish choices go on and on and get continually worse, and this is done by the one who is responsible for leading his people to follow God's commands. You know, because of this, Israel is continually met with hardship, or as it was said in Deuteronomy 28, curses. When you reject the one that promised to provide for you and protect you, you will not be provided for and you will not be protected. Right? Very logical. But instead of saying true to his end of a broken covenant, God sends prophets. Now, prophets are not just people that forecast the future. Prophets are simply mouthpieces for God. Men and women that were called to boldly proclaim truth to a nation that was set on rejecting God and conforming to the world around them. This is a major area where people have misconceptions on the prophets. They just assume that it's going to be about the days that lie ahead of us and the revelation. And there will be a little bit in there about Jesus. But 96%, I've been told, of what the prophets say has nothing to do with our future or even Jesus. The prophets were brought in to speak to the people of their day about what they were up to. Now think of some of the names that we know well. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Right? These are a part of the writing prophets, men who chronicled the message that God gave them to give to the people. So they wrote it down, and that's transferred on to us. And then we get other men like Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Daniel a little bit as well. Now these are men who lived as prophets, and other people chronicled their lives. So you kind of got a mixed bag there. Through these prophets, God declared three major themes to his people. This is what we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks. Their sin, the judgment that's coming from their sin, and then redemption. So tonight we're going to focus in on God calling out their sin. You know, as I was flipping through, whatever, the 12 prophets I don't even know how many are, 12, 18 prophets there were. This is just like endless opportunities for me to pick an example of this. But I chose Micah 3, 9 through 12, just to give you an idea of what it looked like. Go back one, please, for him to point out their sin. Hear this, you rulers of the house of Jacob and chiefs of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equality, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong, Its rulers give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets give oracles for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Surely the Lord is with us. No harm shall come upon us. So we see a list of all of their their sins, things that they're doing wrong. And here's the judgment. Therefore, because of you, Zion, that's the name of their city, shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooden Height. 
So in this prophecy, we see that the men in authority are being called out for the ways that they are treating the people. And the consequence is the destruction of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. Wow, that was so exciting. The nation of Israel being dismissed from church. Right? The nation of Israel being totally sent to exile. You know, as a person who reads through the writing prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, that's another one, so good, he will see a whole variety of sins pointed out with different levels of punishment. For sins, we see greed, sexual immorality, idolatry, anger, violence, and the list goes on and on, things that we struggle with today. And the consequences range from drought and famine, attacks from enemies, to total exile, things that we don't struggle so much with. You know, each prophet is speaking truth into the time and place that God has called him to be into. We are getting into application, I promise. There's a handout out there. There's 30 of them. If you don't have one near you, there's a couple up here. This is a timeline of the time of the prophets. If you want to read the prophets and understand what they're talking about, you have to know who they are talking to. And so you'll see the timeline of the kings. We'll talk about the uh, nation of Israel being split next week. And then the prophets are in between. And so if you're reading Isaiah, it'll say at the beginning of each prophet what kings they were serving under. You can look here too and see where they're at. And then you can jump to the book of Kings, first or second, find that king, and then see what was going on in the nation of Israel during that time gives you a little bit of context to understand why they were saying what they're saying. Because otherwise, it's just a bunch of poetic jarble. So if you've got questions about this, please let me know. It's such a value. If you're into the Bible at all, this is such a valuable tool. I can also send it to you electronically if you want, so just let me know. So through the prophets, God is pointing out specific sins that the people are committing and making it clear that consequences will follow. So now I want to focus a little bit more in on the character of God. Why would God send people to point out people's sins? When some people hear this, it's like, well, look, he's condemning, standing in heaven with his finger pointing, saying, ha, look at you fools. It's the exact opposite, people. Remember how illogical his love is? God does this, points out their sins, and hopes that the people will understand their folly and repent. In the Greek, repent means to change one's mind, to change their attitude, to go in a different direction. By calling out people's wickedness and what it brings, God is giving them a chance to turn away from their destructive past and to return to the way of life. So that way they do not have to experience the heartache and the loss that lie ahead. God does not point out their sins to make them feel guilty. He is not being condescending or hateful. He is being considerate of his people and their future. Please hang on to that. He lets them know of their foolishness and the consequences that will come so that the people will be saved. So let's go back to Isaiah 55, 6 through 9 and read that again with, kind of, with this in mind. Like, Why did the Lord send the prophet? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord so that he may have mercy on them and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So you can see right there in that first half that this is why he's sending them. So that way they turn away from what is causing heartache and loss and pain and destruction and turn back to the one who had already redeemed them so that way they can continue to have the goodness that he has. Because if they do this, he will abundantly pardon them. Even though it makes no sense to us, but his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. You know, one other one, and this is one that I hang on to so deeply within my spirit in order to know who God is and what his thoughts are on humanity. Ezekiel 18. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, all you according to your ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions. Otherwise, iniquity will be your ruin, right? Cause and effect. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed against me and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. That's a prophecy for the Holy Spirit coming. Will, why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. Turn then and live. Man, that still gives me the tingles. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the one who made us. You want to know what his heart is for humanity? It's summed up right there. Why are you doing this to yourself, O house of Israel? This is not what I want to do to you. Turn then and live. You know, if Israel chooses to turn back to their God, they will be restored as a nation and experience the blessings of their Redeemer. And I want to take this one level further. What is incredible is that God is not demanding perfection. It's really important to hang on to. He is not waiting until they are perfectly in line with his commandments and standards before he blesses them. It's not, oh, you missed one. Oh, I'm sorry, but you gave 8%, not 10%. Right, what we see is that this is what he wants. He wants them to fully follow their law, but this is not what he requires. What he requires from his people is a heart that loves him and a desire to live life the way that he directs. Let me give you an example. Jeremiah 17, 24 and 25. So speaking to Israel again. But if you listen to me, says the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it. So such a simple thing, right? They're Saturday. They're not allowed to carry stuff in. Supposed to keep it holy. So small. And right now, Jeremiah is writing to a people that are about to be exiled. They're right at the brink of it. But if they do this one thing, then there shall, be, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the city shall be inhabited forever. Do this one thing for me. And I will continue to pour such abundant blessing upon you. I think that what this shows us is that God simply desires to see that his people have made him and his desires for their life their priority. Even though they can't live their life perfectly, God wants to know that they desire to love him. A major way to do this is through obedience. When he sees his people demonstrate their love, even in small ways, he is ready to pour out his blessing. All right, so there's a little bit of the prophets. I want to move to application now. Next week, we're going to look, like I said, at the judgment that will come, then redemption. Let's look at application for 
God pointing out our sins. Right? Because God does not change, he interacts with us in a very similar way so that our similar outcomes will occur for us. In the ways that he pointed out their sin, he also points out our sin. And he does this in a variety of ways. I'll give you four ones that I thought of. First one, your conscience. The part of your mind and emotion that lets you know if you are doing right or wrong. You know, I looked up the definition of conscience, having knowledge of something or being aware, just like understanding. Regardless of a person's deeper belief on God, we have all been built with a deeper awareness of what is good and bad. I love the way Paul puts it in Romans 2. When Gentiles, those are people that were not given the law, people that are not Jewish, who do not possess the law, do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own conscience also bears witness, and their own conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them. If you want to go deeper on this, I believe they're looking at it tomorrow at Rimrock Main's campus. So God has given us an internal conviction to guide us into living life according to his design for humanity. Right? Think about kids. When they're like two, three, if they're doing something wrong, whether that's like stealing from their sister or hitting somebody or lying, when you confront them at that, about that, you can see they understand most times that what they're doing is wrong. They just kind of get a little bit sheepish, a little bit quiet. They just know instinctively what's going on. Or think about nations that used to be Christian, like most of Europe, and now are post-Christian. They still hold that same code of morality that a Christian nation does because they know instinctively within them what is good and what is wrong. You know, through this, God guides people because that's how we've been built. However, within every person, there are faulty beliefs about what is true. Over time, our conscience can be trained to be okay by our culture with what is actually wrong. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Once a person cries out to the God of the Bible for redemption, they receive the Spirit, God himself. The Spirit, in similar ways to our conscience, guides us in the ways that we should act. It points out our sins in very real and convicting ways. Unlike our conscience, which can easily be ignored or dismissed, the conviction from the Spirit seems to be far more real and much harder to ignore. You know, 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10 puts it this way. Now rejoice, this is Paul talking, not because you were grieved, now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you felt a godly grief. That means God himself made them feel grieved so that you were not harmed in any way by us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. Let me give you an example from my life. Some of you may have heard this, but I was a huge pothead for like 12 years of my life. Back when I was 15, 16, right when it was getting started, I was a saved son of God, fully redeemed. I had the spirit within me. When I was about to get high, specifically in times that I ended up getting caught, I would feel this deep conviction within me not to do it. It was just like unsettling how real it was. And time and time again, I would always end up in, in like a form of punishment. And it was God, just how I look at it now, God telling me, man, pull away from this. 
And if I would have listened to him then, that would have been 12 years of my life saved from being subdued to just a slave to my mind. So the conviction is very real. And we all have our stories. Number three, the Bible. You know, in the same way that the prophets simply brought God's word to the people, we have the Bible. God spoke to, all, spoke to and through all the authors of the books of the Bible so that all people could have access to his desires for us. When one spends time reading the Bible, one's mind and emotions are influenced or directed. Through God's word, we are encouraged and given hope, but we are also convicted, shown that we have not been living the way that we are made to live. 2 Timothy 3, 6, 3, 16 and 17 defines scriptures in this way. All scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. You know, and I I guarantee, the people that I see here in the audience, I guarantee we could go around and talk about the ways that we've been convicted by various verses that we've read. You know, the fourth way that I think God points out our sins is through people. You know, in the same way that God used prophets in the Old Testament, he uses people today. Whether it's through a podcast, a friend over coffee, a stranger in the church, or that you happen to run into on the sidewalk, God instructs his people to share specific words with other people. You know, it often are words of encouragement or a declaration of God's love, but it is also words of conviction as well. You know, it's really important that what they say falls in line with the themes, the concepts of the Bible. If it does not, then it is not from God. But one of our God-given roles in this life is to bring goodness to others. And often this comes through unexpected words, something that God puts on your mind to give to somebody else. You know, let me give you another story about my life. And again, I just felt like I was supposed to be totally transparent with you all being led by the Spirit. And so at the end of that 12 years of being a complete stoner, I was living in Hawaii. I'd been married for five years, and I was starting to fall back into it. I pulled away for a little bit, but getting sucked back into it, and I was just becoming overwhelmed by my addiction to it. And at one point, my wife, Rosalind, just looked at me and said, Evan, I don't like when you're stoned. And that was really convicting because I realized that, man, this is not only affecting me, but it's also affecting my wife. But the prophetic nature of my wife being used continues. So during this time, just a few different opportunities that I had where my mind was so cloudy, I started looking at pornographic photos. Just a few different times. I hadn't done it for years and years, but I found myself getting sucked back into it. And that's what happens when you allow yourself to be overcome by sinful, ungodly things, then more and more just seem to pile on. What's incredible, after like the second time that I had done that, my wife comes up to me, locks eye contact, and says, Evan, are you looking at porn? She had not seen anything on the computer, on my phone, wherever I was doing that. She felt convicted by God that her husband was looking at pornography. And she was bold enough to come and confront me on that. So just like God did for 1,500 years with Israel, he does for us today. He makes us aware of our sin, the choices that we make that are not in line with God's plan. 
And he points these out for the same reason that he pointed out Israel's, to bring about repentance. It's really important to know that God does not make us aware of our foolishness in order to make us feel ashamed or worthless. He brings it to the forefront of our mind in all those different ways and more so that we can, be, so that we can intentionally turn away from death and turn to life. When we operate in ways that are contrary to God's design, we are walking down a road of hardship and loss. I can promise you that. From my own experience, from what I read throughout history, from everybody else that I've talked to, when you depart from God's plans for his creation, there's heartache and there's loss. But by following God's instruction, we are given love, joy, peace, contentment, fulfillment, those things that we truly and deeply desire out of this life. God is perfect. He knows all things and stands outside of time. He knows what our foolish choices will lead to. Let me give you an analogy to help you kind of maybe make a little more sense of this. So we, if you don't know, we own a property up by Mount Rushmore with a bunch of vacation rentals. And this fall had some issues with our well and had to dig up a bunch of lines in order to patch different pipes. Uh, and one of the major solutions that we came up with was simply putting a cap on an underground water line. So six feet down, big cap, stop the leak. We were good to go. So buried all that up. About a month and a half later, I had a guy named Mark Falcon, professional plumber, goes to church here, come up to help me with another job. And I was kind of telling him about how we had taken care of that other problem. And he asked me, like, what kind of cap did you put on there? And I was like, you know, the $2 PVC cap that you can get from uh, Walmart, right? More like Menards. But what kind of glue did you put on there? Oh, the cheapest one we could find. And he looked at me. He's like, Evan, that is not meant to go on there. That, I'm surprised it's even hold, held on there for this long. Maybe the dirt itself is holding it on there. But that will come off. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. And what we were looking at, Mark, what I wanted you to do, and I pointed him away from that, <laughs> right? If I would have taken care of that in that moment, post-season, when it was super dry, had him up there, we knew exactly where it was at, would have taken 45 minutes. Yesterday, that cap came off. We've been open for two weeks. There's a gigantic pool of water in the middle of our cabins. And so I spent a few, six, seven hours yesterday trying to dig that out and ended up hitting a sewer line. All sorts of problems. If I would have listened to the professional and his advice... From his experience, I would have been saved so much time dealing with heartache. It's the exact same thing with God. Think about who he is, his place in the universe, his desires for you, why he instructs you, what he knows lies ahead of you due to your foolish choices. He points out our brokenness in order to restore us to the life that he has created us to have. You know, and I don't want to end my story, my struggle with porn and weed where I did. Because what happened with Roz calling me out like that was a complete 180 turn. Right? I was only a couple steps into that, and she, through God, yanked me out of that. It's just good to go. Because she was bold enough to speak God's truth into my life, and I was willing to listen to her. Changed everything. So a little walk away what I hope you walk away with tonight, the reality of sin and godly conviction. We are sinful and God convicts us. 
Just see it over and over and over in the Bible. The feelings that you feel, that deeper part of your gut, the words that you get from godly counsel, they're there in order to pull you away from the destruction that lies ahead because sin will always lead to death. Even if it's not spiritual death, you may have been saved, but it will lead to some form of loss and heartache. So please understand the reality of both of those. And the second thing, dealing with the character of God, that God is continually interacting with us regardless of our behavior so that we can experience the abundant life. Think about that. The creator of everything that put breath in your lungs, blood in your veins, thoughts in your mind, for today, he is continually interacting with you. No matter how you are behaving. In order to understand his guidance, we must seek him. And the Bible is a crucial element to know what God wants you to do. So is quiet time, stilling your mind, praying, talking to him, moving away from your distractions. When you know what he is calling you to do, you must be willing to obey him. That's the free will component. Just because he tells you what to do doesn't mean you'll have that goodness. You must be willing to obey him. Even if you partially, only partially follow him, you will receive goodness in your life. That's just illogical to me. But that's what I see in the Bible. But the more you obey him, the more goodness you will receive. You know, let's just end in prayer, just collectively, just seeking God and allowing him to be our priority to just have his will in our life. God, you are so big and so good and so beyond our comprehension. And for that reason alone, if nothing else, we desire for you to guide us, to lead us, to show us how we should live. God, please, if you need to convict us, if we're doing something wrong, do it today, do it now. Just allow our minds and our emotions to be affected by your conviction, to be overwhelmed by them. God, we surrender to you. We give you our lives, our time, our choices. Because we trust you, we know that goodness comes from you and you alone. Amen.